Hey there, history fans. And welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we are covering Suleiman the Magnificent. Was he magnificent? Seemed pretty fair in my research, so we'll go with, yeah, sure, why not? Okay. Before we get into today's episode, don't forget to check us out on our social medias, Instagram and Facebook at History Explains It All underscore podcast, where we posted Today in History, a archaeology in the news. And I, I think... I think I'm going to call the last one Photo Friday. Oh, you figured out a name? I think that's what I'm going to go with. What What do you all think about that that idea? Let, let, let me know. <laughs> I mean, I like Photo Friday. I like it too. So Photo Friday, where we post pictures that Melissa or I have taken, anything pertaining to history, archaeology, anything like that, went to a museum, went to a site, anything. And if it's you guys got any historical photos, Yes, yeah, send them in with us. Absolutely. Send them into our email at historyexplainsall at gmail.com and we will check it out and we will give give us your name and stuff so that we can credit you and everything, of course. Yeah, or tag us and the Instagram poster, however you want to do it. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. We'd love to we'd love to do hear that. And if you can, please leave us a rate and review. That way we know how you feel and uh, we others can find us that way. Yay. And with that note, shall we get into the topic? For right ahead. Suleiman was born to Sultan Selim I and Aisha Hafsa Sultan. Sorry if I mispronounced that. He was the only surviving, he was their only surviving son of both of them. And he became, of course, the heir to the Sultanate. He was taught theology, literature, science, history, warfare. I can keep going. He learned six different languages, which he became fluent in, including Arabic, Turkish, Farsi, Urdu, Serbian, and a separate smaller Turkish dialect. Again, we can keep going with this. (laughs) He also inherited a rather secure kingdom from his father, Selim Selim I, as his father had defeated the Mamluks, Venice, and parts of the Safavid Empire. Due to the defeat of uh venice suleiman did gain a naval fleet which was actually unheard of for a sultan that was the he was the first to have a naval fleet Mm. yeah because you know they're majorly land-based uh before his father died he he did have suleiman kind of working under him at uh, throughout the empire like going from state to state when he was, by the time he was 17 years old. And at the age of 26, Suleiman did inherit the throne from his father. However, at the time, his mother was co-regent. I'm not sure why I didn't find a source on that, but I mean, I guess she thought he was unready at the age of 26. I don't know. Or maybe he thought he was unready. Or it could just be something in the clause when you take power, or it could have been like, I know, Agrippina. After his crowning, he already put, he had begun putting his plans for military campaigns and for expansion into action, which leads me right into my next topic of military campaigns. All right, do you think you're ready for this, Melissa? Because this might take a hot second. No, go ahead. All right. 
So he became Sultan and he began several military campaigns right after he became, he was crowned Sultan. No surprise. Shocking. In 1521, he began by putting down a revolt in Damascus, which was started by the governor, Kenberti Ghazali, who ended up dying in battle. Woohoo! Quick revolt, quick, quick finish, quick beginning, quick end. Also in that same year, he decided to lay siege to the city of Belgrade on the Danube River. And in order to successfully capture the city, he used both land and sea, aka the river, to blockade them basically blocking them in, making it unable, making them unable to have food supply chains and so on and so forth go through the city. And the city did end up falling to Suleiman, and it was actually the last barrier that was stopping him from his plan to expand into Europe. But more into that later. However, one of the biggest military campaigns he faced was against, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Against the remnants of Christianity from the Crusades. Well, that doesn't surprise me in the least. It, it's Arabia and it's Islam versus Christianity. That's not surprising. He mainly focused on those that were left behind in the Mediterranean from the Crusades, specifically the Knights Hospitallers, who were centered on the island of Rhodes. They were a thorn in Suleiman's side as they had been capturing the ships of several Muslim nations, not just the Ottoman Turks, and enslaving their pe- the people on those ships and taking their food, which included, of course, their main staple of grain and their gold. Hmm, how much more of a pain can the Crusades have been? Through these acts, people who were trying to make what is the Hajj or the Holy Pilgrimage to Mecca felt fear. So it actually started to impact them in that sense as well. While Suleiman's fi- father had tried to get rid of the Knights Hospitaller in 1480, he was unfortunately unsuccessful. And while he made a dent in their forts and fortified cities, in between 1480 and 1522, the Knights Hospitallers used the people whom they had enslaved in order to rebuild their battlements. Nice. Suleiman was, of course, not happy with them. And in order to finally rid himself of the Knights Hospitaller, he sent out a fleet of 400 ships, which had approximately 100,000 soldiers, which landed at the island of Rhodes on June 26, 1522. The Ottoman Turks then went on to destroy the bastions. And while this battle raged, or basically Suleiman himself, decided to lead an army across the coastal land to get to the island of Rhodes. So imagine you send a fleet and at the same time that the fleet is sailing, you're marching across the land. Remember, this is like modern day Turkey with a lot of people and a lot of battalions. So well, on June 26, 1522, his ships reached the island of Rhodes. Suleiman himself did not reach the island until July. And it took about another six months to completely break the Knights Hospitallers down. On December 22nd, 1522, the Knights Hospitallers and the civilians of Rhodes were forced to surrender to Suleiman. They were pretty well fortified then. Yep. 
At least they had enough food. I guess. Yeah. Like some of the other sieges we've talked about. <laughs> At the end of it, Suleiman gave the Knights Hospitaller 12 days to gather their things and evacuate the island of Rhodes. They had to go. Goodbye. Get out. He also, you know what else he did? Mm-hmm. He also provided 50 ships for these men to get on and sail out, out of Rhodes. Like, he just said, I'm not going to take you prisoner of war. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to do any of that. Just pack up your things. And here's some ships. I'll give you some of my ships just so I can get rid of you. Get out of my land and don't go back. Basically. Well, most of them immigrated to Sicily. So, I mean, I guess you could say it worked in their favor. However, for the citizens of Rhodes, they were given the option to stay or leave. And they were given three years. They weren't given 12 days to evacuate. They were given three years to decide if they wanted to stay or leave. It's quite a quite amount of time. Yeah. Very forgiving and forthcoming in that. And if they chose to stay, they wouldn't have to pay taxes for five years. <laughs> and they received the word of the Sultan that they would have religious freedom, basically, and that their churches would not be turned into mosques or anything like that. So in the end of it, the majority of the people actually decided to stay on the island of Rhodes under Suleiman. I probably would. She was very beneficent, uh, be- bene- benevolent. There we go. I was going to say beneficent, <laughs> benevolent. Which word are we going with that starts with bene? <laughs> At the end, Suleiman. <laughs> what? Oh, I was like, a, a word that starts with bene. I was like, oh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay, cool. <laughs> but I no. do like him too. Yes. Uh, so Suleiman had also planned on his expansion of the Ottoman Empire. And he also did begin, you know, heading west towards the Danube. And the Battle of the Mohawks took place between Suleiman and King Louis II of Hungary on August 29th, 1526. And let's just say uh, Suleiman won that one. He won a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's Suleiman. He did, he, there's a reason that he had the nickname that he did. So he defeats King Louis II of Hungary. And supports a man named John Zapolia as the next king of Hungary, which would, of course, be under Suleiman. It would be a territory with a puppet king. However, Melissa, do you know who kind of interrupted that planning? Oh, that could be so many people. I, you, you mentioned them earlier. Christians? Habsburg. Oh, the Habsburgs. Well, it's still kind of on that lane. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you mentioned, as in, I mentioned it off uh, off recording. Yes, got it. Yeah, this, this whole thing with the Habsburgs is fascinating. <laughs> but the Habsburgs decided that they would put forward someone else, and that was Louis II's brother-in-law, Ferdinand. Yep. And they also were, just weren't going to stand for a non-Habsburg or non-Christian king over Hungary. So the Habsburgs decide to war. So they march into Hungary and they take Buda, it's a city, and they place Ferdinand on the throne. And well, let's just say uh, this feud went on for quite a while. 
Yup. Didn't at also, one point, am I, am I jumping in saying that uh, Suleiman also took sides with the French and the Protestants against the Habsburg or am I confused on that? Uh, I think he did. Uh, I think, but I don't have definitive, like my source didn't have that, but that's okay. So basically after the Habsburgs decide to march in and say, no, Ferdinand's going to be king, not the Zapolia guy. Well, decade. Well, it just, it, th this goes on for so long, I can't. I'm not going into like straight up immersive detail here because if I do, we'll be here for forever, Melissa. We'll be here for freaking ever because it's not like there, it's just, this is the only one that only war slash campaign that he had. So Suleiman decides that he's going to march back into Hungary once more. And he takes Buda from the Habsburgs and continues on and heads straight to Vienna, which is the Habsburg capital. And he starts to basically besiege it. However, let's just, it, it didn't work. You Vienna ended up winning at least round one. We're in round one of the boxing match. So in round two, he once again attempts to see, uh, place a siege against Vienna. However, again, they were held off and the Ottomans had to withdraw from the battle. But this is not the end. Suleiman has decided that this is not the end and he will absolutely take Vienna and decides to go on a another attempt in 1532. However, this was problematic because, well, imagine what it's like in 1532 during like spring and muddiness and grossness. Blah. So there was a lot of rain and mud and Suleiman's army just couldn't get past that. So they had never actually made it to Vienna on that one. So he decides to uh, retreat. And then in 1541, okay, this is nine years later, the Habsburgs decide to destroy the city of Buda and try to remove Zapolia from the Hungarian throne. Once again, sparking war. Yep. But this time the Hungarians sided with the Ottomans. Wait, I'm, I'm confused. What are you confused about? Philemon is the Ottomans. Yeah, I know, but the Hungarian people this time sided with the Ottoman Turks. Like, normal, they, they weren't a part of the war before. Got They're it. Just sitting on their land. Got it. This time they decide to side with the Ottomans and fight against the Habsburgs and the Austrian army. Well, I mean, the Habsburgs back then, mm. you know, I'm not sure it's exactly the height of their power, but, you know, okay, their, their policies and the way that they rule compared to the way the Suleiman ruled, Suleiman's better. Yeah, that's why the people in Rhodes stayed in Rhodes. Well, he's called the Magnificent. He's called the Lawgiver for reasons. Yeah. He was not known for being cruel unless he had to be. Right. Kind of like the, don't make me cruel and I won't be. Which we could say about a few other people 
uh, that I'll be mentioning in one of my sessions. Oh, good. So in the end, Habsburg lost. Ferdinand was forced to renounce his claim to be king of Hungary. And uh, they ended up having to pay tribute. But uh, this isn't, of course, the end, like I said, because, you know, at the same time that this war is happening, you know, this, this is the Western side of the Ottoman Empire. There's a whole other, other side to the Ottoman Empire on the east. And a very big enemy. And I kind of mentioned them a little bit before. The Safavids of the Persian Empire. And they were the ones of Southeast Asia, basically. I'm sorry, Southeast Asia, Southwest Asia, geez. <laughs> I'm getting my directions mixed up right now. We go that way. Okay, that, is a, that is a reference from the movie Wilma, Willow with Val Kilmer and uh, Warwick Davis. I, I was quoting Wizard of Oz, but okay. I was quoting Willow. We I go think Willow was quoting Wizard of Oz. I know what you were quoting. I was I was quoting a totally different movie. So think of it this way. The Persians were also a very big empire. And it's one of the Ottoman Turks' greatest enemies, the Safavid Empire. And the ruler at the time that Suleiman was alive was known as Shah Tamasp. And Shah Tamasp decided, I'm going to push Persian power into Ottoman, into the Ottoman territories by assassinating the Ottoman governor in Baghdad and putting a Persian puppet in his place. He also convinced the governor of Bitlis in eastern Turkey to swear allegiance to the Safavids rather than Suleiman. Let's make more enemies. The tables are turning. No, no. Mm, mm. Yes, no, kind of. So this is at the same time that Suleiman is battling the Habsburgs in Hungary and Austria. While he's battling Hungary and Austria, he sends his Grand Vizier with another army. Yeah, he had enough people that he could send a second army. Reminds you of Khan? Because it reminds me. Oh, no, not at all. I never, never heard of that. <laughs> Who's that? Like we did a really, really apparently popular episode on him earlier, like a month ago. Yeah super popular episode thanks everybody <laughs> so he sends his grand vizier with another army to again capture bitlis and he also seized another city known as tabriz from the persians which was in northeastern present-day iran just to give you an idea of its location and after Suleiman returned from his invasion of Austria, he decided he, he himself personally is going to go into Persia. And that happened in 1534. However, the Shah is rather sneaky. Shah Tamasp 
decides, I'm not going to meet you on open battle. Uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm going to bring you in. Kind of like guerrilla warfare. Ooh, sneaky, sneaky. Mm-hmm. And he brings his troops back into the desert and starts using guerrilla warfare against them. However, Suleiman did end up capturing Baghdad, and he was once again confirmed as the true caliph of the Islamic world, which had been a whole situation, I guess, in this. So, you know, he, he's had a major victory over Shah Tamasp. However, he decides in 1548, he decides, I need to get rid of the Safavids. They're just just like the Knights Hospitallers, they're being a thorn in his side. So he decides he needs to get rid of them. And he has a second army drawn up, another army drawn up, and starts marching. And again, Tomas does the same thing of retreating. But instead of retreating to the desert, guess where he retreats, Melissa? A really big city? The ocean? A mountain. Caucus Mountain Range. Yeah. So it's rugged and it's freaking snowy. Ooh, ooh, no, not fun. However, Suleiman does begin to gain and retake territories, but he never, at this time, he does not come to terms with the Shah Tamas, nor does he capture him. However, in 1553, he begins another campaign. And again, the Shah avoids that open battlefield. Shah Tamas decides again to retreat. However, Suleiman doesn't follow. Instead, he enters the Persian heartland and just starts wasting everything, just destroying it. Anything in his way, he destroys it. And so... The Shah decides, okay, I guess it is time to just give up or else everyone's going to be in trouble, you know, that kind of situation. And so he made a deal and signed a treaty with uh, Suleiman where he contained control of the city of Tabriz and promised to no longer do border raids on Turkey and to permanently relinquish his claim he basically completely and utterly gives up his claim to Baghdad and the rest of Mesopotamia. So, well, I mean, a bit. realize defeat. It's sometimes it's smart to give in to said defeat. I mean, I think it's very smart when you're like, uh, this is starting to risk everybody's life too, and it's going to destroy the country. And my people are not going to be happy with me. Yeah, I don't think they were already. Ah, there. So he gives that up. However, that's, again, not the end because, again, expansion. If you remember, I did say that Suleiman gained an entire naval fleet from Venice. Which is a hard thing to do coming from Venice. Yep. So when he gained that entire fleet, he gains the ability, I don't know if, I'm going to take a few steps back here, actually, and do a little bit of explaining. There are two types of trade routes 
that crossed the world at this time via sea and via land well i mean yeah yeah they were gonna go by air not yet <laughs> we don't have that yet there's no planes yet don't jump the gun here when Selim the first gained that fleet of ships from venice he opened a whole new trade route for them bringing in more money gaining them an army or more like a fleet of of armada an armada he gained quite a bit and suleiman utilizes it for his expansion i mean it's sitting there why not yeah they started to have trading ports between uh, india actually suleiman and akbar began exchanging letters and they were able to do that because he had gained a fleet quicker to go by sea if i remember correctly uh from from reading while i was doing my portion of the research though the uh it suleiman started the golden age of the ottoman empire and though it wouldn't be as big as it would become it was certainly quite large given it's the ottoman empire but at a point he had from i think spain to india mm -hmm. rulers were paying him tribute i don't know about that that one didn't like there's no come up in that talk in my notes because i really didn't focus on like everyone else paying him tribute but i do know that they had mutual respect for each other there was a lot of respect for Suleiman, partly out of fear and partly because of his tolerance, really. Yes, he had a lot of tolerance. And anyone that tried to enter or take even a little portion, he was able to drive away because of that fleet. So it gave him a very big leg up. And I'm actually done pertaining to the expansion and many, many wars. I tried to keep it a little bit less because this one took what 40 minutes alone <laughs> well no we probably talked for about the first five minutes or something i don't know okay so, uh, this was 30 minutes of me just talking about the beginning and majorly all of his expansions and wars and everything so the so, next one will take about 30 minutes and it'll be about an hour yeah and then he's got his death so i think it'll be pretty pretty decent yeah all right, so our next section on Suleiman the Magnificent is his expansion of arts during the Golden Age of the Ottoman Empire. And it began in a kind of a variety of ways in terms of expansion, art, literature, politics, and a whole bunch of stuff. And one of the most significant were the arts. And during his rule, he established what was called the Community of the Craftsmen, which were imperial artistic societies where craftsmen and artisans would apprentice with masters and then rise in their field while also getting paid adequately, but they're also court artisans, so they're going to get paid well. And a surviving payroll, one of the first surviving payrolls during this time from 1526 lists 40 artisan societies with more than 600 members and just 40 societies. 600? 
40 societies, four zero. Yeah, with more than 600 members between all 40. And this is 1526. So this is early on at the beginning of his community of the craftsmen or the imperial artists. That's quite a lot of people. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, I can only imagine what it expanded to. I couldn't find information on apparel towards the end of it, but I imagine a lot. I was going to say it probably just grew and grew and grew. Yeah. Now, because of the vast conquered lands of Suleiman, the artists that were part of his court were not just varied in their talents, but also varied in their ethnicities. There were a blend of Turkish, Arabic, and quite a lot of Europeans, and also from other areas around the empire. I think maybe eventually there might have been like Indian as well too. The court, I'm sorry, the artists within the court were also not only just painters and writers, they're goldsmiths, furriers, jewelers, poets, and anything else you could think of. If you were an artist or craftsman by trade, you could apply to be in the court of Suleiman after you've finished your apprenticeship at least. Now, Suleiman himself was also an accomplished poet and often wrote in both Persian and Turkish. And many of which over time have actually become Turkish proverbs. And one of his most famous is, everyone aims at the same meaning, but there are many versions of the story. Which is a nice one, I like that. And his most famous verse of poetry is, the people think of wealth and power as the greatest fate, but in this world, a spell of health is the best estate. What men call sovereignty is a worldly strife and constant war. Worship of God is the highest throne, the happiest of all states. Yeah, it's kind of pretty. I think it's, I think it's quite pretty. Well, I didn't have them in here because I wasn't sure if you were going to mention it in other sections in terms of his wife and their children but his devotion to his wife, he wrote so much love poetry to his wife and it's pretty. But I didn't, I didn't add him here because I wasn't sure if you were going to mention anything about his family. I didn't really because I did his early life more. I, I might mention it briefly in another section or so. Um, but yeah, he was his, his first wife at least, or the, 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 the main wife, um, utterly devoted to her and I think they were married for a good 30 years before she passed away and, and like it, 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 it the poetry is gorgeous so go ahead and look around for it now that was the arts in terms of buildings and architecture around the entire empire Suleiman also had many structures built of course uh, and his biggest attempt was actually to turn the city of Constantinople into the center of Islam via architecture and social establishments. And throughout the empire, his chief architect, Mamar Sinan, would actually oversee bridges, monuments, mosques, palaces, and much more. And Mamar Sinan was incredibly well-known throughout the empire. And he was specifically chosen as the chief architect out of the court architects. It was, it was like a, a, like a royal guild of architects or something like that, if I remember. Now, two of his most famous works are, and I'm going to totally butcher these, the Suleimani Mosque and the Salimi Mosque. I apologize. I don't know how to pronounce those correctly. And then under, I found this really fascinating. Under Suleiman, at one point during a bunch of his 
artistic restorations, he restored the Dome of the Rock, the walls of Jerusalem, and the Kaaba in Mecca. That really doesn't surprise me that he did that. Why not? Because even though he was a Muslim, he still, just like with the people of Rhodes, he gave them basically religious freedom as long as they were under him. It's kind of like he took after Alexander the Great. I, I mentioned Alexander in my next section. <laughs> yeah, essentially, I mean, I'll talk about this in my next section when I talk about his political achievements, which were incredibly vast. But yeah, I mean, you could certainly, I mean, he's called the Magnificent for a reason. Most people don't get the name the Great or the Magnificent without actually typically earning it. I can't say much for it. I know there's a lot of good things about Catherine the Great's rule, but there's also a lot of not so great things. But in terms of policies and art and tolerance, yeah, Suleiman the Magnificent or Suleiman the Lawgiver is very much like Alexander the Great, also like the Great Khan. Absolutely. Because they also realize, and I'll, I can, I'll talk about it in my next section, but they realize that a happy empire is a productive empire and if you allow for religious tolerance at the very least and when you're allowed to express your religious viewpoints publicly and practice them publicly without fear of the inquisition at the least <laughs> you know again a happy kingdom is a productive kingdom it's kind of it's literally the same thing with any kind of corporate happy employees are productive employees simple as that agreed but i didn't have too much on most of my sections because it was a lot of the same repeat stuff because most of Suleiman's information are mostly about his military campaigns so that was all i had on the expansion of the arts now i'm going to talk about his political achievements before i talk about his specific achievements i do want to give a very brief overview of laws and politics of the time in that area, or at least within Islam. There are two main laws, the religious or Sharia law, and number two, the Kanun's or Sultan's laws. And the Sultan's laws pretty much covered any area that wasn't religious law, criminal law, taxes, land disputes, things like that. And throughout his reign, Suleiman would make many, many political changes. And one of his biggest was to collect all of the judgments that had been issued by the previous nine sultans, including his own father, and go through all of them, remove any duplicate laws, contradictory laws, and then collect the ones he thought were most beneficial to the empire and issue forth a single legal code that everyone had to follow. And these became known as Kanun I. Osmani or the Ottoman laws. And this would actually be the basis of laws within the empire from the next 300 years. So he set the precedence. Oh, yeah. He set the precedent on a whole lot of stuff. A lot of stuff I'm about to mention, and including the religious tolerance stuff, but a lot of the, 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 the reforms, essentially, I'm about to mention are things you would not really expect in the 1500s but that we've come to realize are a good thing now in the 1900s 
20th century, you know, 20, the 2000s. Most of what he was trying to implement that other people have tried to implement throughout most of history are things that we are just more or less now implementing in a lot of countries today. He was ahead of his time. I would say he's quite progressive, especially for his time. Because he also went off, off tradition a lot of the time too. But to the benefit of the people, which was his big cause, he was also very much instrumental in protecting the Jewish population throughout his empire as well. Now, uh, in either 1553 or 1554, apparently under the suggestion of his doctor, who was a Spanish Jew named Moses Haman, the Sultan issued forth a firman or a royal mandate or decree denouncing blood libels against Jews throughout the entire empire. I did not know what a blood libel was. I had to look this up. Apparently, it is the action of falsely accusing Jews of murdering Christian boys in order to use their blood in rituals, which, of course, they never did. I know we didn't. I know. <laughs> I don't think that anyone ever really has. It was just essentially saying, you can't slander Jews anymore. Because, I mean, it's, it's essentially a falsely accusing somebody of a crime without any evidence. But because of religious intolerance, the person you accuse is going to get put to death because you just don't like them. And now you can't do that anymore, thankfully. Well, at least under Suleiman. I know. That's why, when, that's why Jews actually really liked him, especially after the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, well, the, it, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition, but no one also likes the Spanish Inquisition. But he, it wasn't just the Jewish population he was helping. He also helped the Christians as well. At one point, most because there was a lot of infighting between Christians and, is, and, and Muslims, for sure, more particularly, a lot of Christians that had been captured in war or just captured were typically sold and were serfs and used as farm laborers. And at one point, Suleiman put forth a decree releasing them from their serfdoms, saying that this is religious intolerance and I am for religious tolerance, which is pretty cool. He also reformed criminal legislation. I like this. I like this one a lot. By setting out rules for specific offenses. So Back then, maybe even so now, uh, at least to a degree, in that particular area of the world, it wasn't com it, it was very common that if you committed, depending on who was ruling, a crime or any crime, you could be charged with death or mutilation. If you stole an apple, you get your hand cut off. If, <laughs> like with the coffee bands, if you were caught drinking coffee. You'd be sewn up into a skin and tossed in the river to die. So death and mutilation in terms of charges for those found guilty were very, very common. And he did away with a lot of reasons for using that. And it's more of, okay, you stole this. You're going to be, this is now your charge for stealing this. So because he wanted to reduce death and mutilation in terms of lawful decrees, which I think is really good. 
He also was very instrumental in building universities and providing education for people. And throughout the empire, you would actually find educational centers near many areas of importance, such as mosques, libraries, hospitals, public baths, soup kitchens, which he was apparently very instrumental in creating soup kitchens, and a lot of residences as well, so that the public could use the universities to better themselves. He just showed that he cared about all of his people, not just a specific group of them. Exactly. But he also knew that, again, a happy kingdom is a productive kingdom. I mean, that's just kind of the basis of all of this. If the people are allowed to better themselves, it works best for the empire. And if people have access to education, access to healthcare, uh, you know, access to a good life, you're going to have better people. And this is the 1550s, so that's a pretty good idea back then. But what I really like about this next one is tax reform. And I don't like taxes, but I understand the importance of them. Get me wrong. But he took the tax rules that had been set out by his father and all of the previous sultans. So in case it wasn't mentioned, uh, Suleiman was the 10th sultan. And, and, but he completely scrapped all the nine previous tax reforms that had, had, they, they had set out and created what today would be called a very progressive tax reform and created a transparent tax system with a tax rate that would be, be varied based on the person's income, which I think we've only started recently doing in the, the, the recent history. So it, it kind of, reminds me i'm starting to get like think of like the the like scandinavian systems or finnish which isn't exactly part of scandinavia but i know that they have a couple of things where you know if you get charged with something and you have to pay a fine your fine is based off of your income but also other things are based off of your income to make sure that you aren't being taken advantage of which is a good thing Let's think about it because, like we said, Suleiman, extremely progressive for his time. Everything that he did to move things forward ended up just getting pushed back, if you look at history. Well, that's kind of standard throughout a lot of history, unfortunately. A lot of people, I mean, I, I mean I'm not saying that the Romans were exactly particularly progressive because they weren't. It's all patriarchal. But think about how advanced things were under the Roman Empire. And then when the schism happened, how backwards Europe became before the Industrial Revolution came along. I mean, the Industrial Revolution also only did so much when it com comes to some of that stuff that Suleiman did. Well, no, true. I'm just trying to think of historical equivalences to people, to somebody in charge of something that large that did so much to benefit the people he ruled under. And then it all came crashing down not long after he died. Because not very shocking. No. I think with the thing with Suleiman as he, and, okay, so I'll, I'll get into it because uh, I don't know that it's also mentioned. He broke, as I mentioned, with a lot of different traditions. He broke with the tradition of tax reforms. He broke with the tradition 
of the woman he married. <laughs> and I'll get into that in just a second. But he it broke with the tradition of all the Ottoman laws, uh, like the, the, the Sultan laws that had been created before. And he broke with mostly, mostly the tradition of, I am Sultan, I am in power, and you bend to my will. Because back then, you had the power, and you could tell people what to do, and they didn't have a choice. But it's not a good thing to do, because it, you know, if, if you've got oppression, it's not a good situation. And not just like the, the tax reform, which helped people to pay the taxes that needed to, but it was a tax rate based off of your income. So if you were a low income, you had to pay a lower tax. So, which is a really good idea. The higher you, more income you have, the more you should pay taxes. I mean, yes, absolutely. He also set out to hire people for various positions based off their merits and skills, unlike the previous traditions of hiring family members and those with money, which was, I mean, nepotism was rampant throughout history, but he broke with that too. So, I, I mean, he's called the Magnificent for a reason. It's not just because he was good at conquering lands. There's always more behind an addition to a name than, there, than, than we think. Right. Now, in terms of all this new stuff, he also, he made it very, very clear in his degrees, his decrees, that this new system that he was implementing would be upheld by everybody in the entire empire. Everyone was subject to it, no matter what your station was. If you were rich, you couldn't pay your way out of a problem. You had to pay what your income was due. You had, if you just because you were rich and you did made a, you know you committed a really bad crime, you couldn't just pay your way out of the crime. You had to pay for it. The what I was mentioning about his wife. Well, technically she was Muslim. She converted, but he broke with tradition instead of marrying say, another noble from the empire. She was the daughter, a converted. She was the daughter of a Polish Orthodox Christian who then at one point got captured, sold into slavery, and then became part of his harem. But she became his favorite and against tradition married her and she became the wife. So he broke with a lot of traditions for the benefit of the empire. And I really liked him for that. You're up. So, of course... All good things must come to an end. And Suleiman, of course, does die like everybody else. In 1566, Suleiman was 71 years old. And I guess he was still in some pretty fit shape because he led his army on a final expedition against the Habsburgs in Hungary. Do you know which number that one was? 50? I don't remember. 13. It gets so lost. His 13th conquest, not a good number. Well, on September 7th, 1566, he died of a heart attack. On September 8th, 1566, his army won the Battle of Segedvar. His army did not know during that battle that he was dead. The officials decided they did not want to cause an uproar at like the last minute and therefore they kept the fact that he had died quiet. Sure, I get that. And it was kept a secret for, can you guess how long, Melissa? 
a few days, month and a half. It was kept a secret, at least against the troops for a month and a half, because the officials wanted them to solidify their uh, conquering and control over the area that they, they were battling for in Hungary. So they kept it quiet. Fair. However, they did begin to prepare his body to be returned to Constantinople. And, well, it was a month and a half. So they kind of had to keep the body from going putrid. In order to do that, they removed all of his organs and they buried his organs in Hungary. So I read that. That's a weird thing. Think of ancient Egypt. They removed the organs in order to uh, put the body through the process of, of mummification. No, that part I understood. It's the part of removing the organs, burying them in a separate location, and then taking the body back to Constantinople. They wanted to keep it from going putrid, and the organs are what go putrid first. Yeah, that's fair. They're the ones that what turned to liquid mush. Human soup. Got it. So they did prepare his body and today just so you know there's a church and a fruit orchard over where his organs were buried or are they maybe i might get into that later but that's uh that's his death i mean it, there wasn't much to it the the he had a heart attack he was 71 years old well, I guess I'll get into his legacy then real quick. So as we've frequently mentioned in these last few sections, he is remembered for being very inclusive and very progressive and building laws that were equal all around throughout the empire. Obviously, rather than favoring the rich, he allowed religious freedom, as long as there were no riots or rebellions, of course, including Europeans from all over to participate in his imperial art societies in court. And again, breaking with tradition to marry the daughter of a Polish Orthodox Christian priest, or priest who he was devoted to for the 30 years that they were married. So very interesting guy. And unlike some European rulers at the time or throughout most of history, Suleiman also saw the need to be flexible in order to have the empire survive. Remembering Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, as we've mentioned, he saw his position not one of just power, but also responsibility. With his political, military, and artistic achievements, he was able to create various systems that would not only endure for centuries to come, but are still even revered to this day. He is known as the Magnificent. He is known as the Lawgiver. And there are portraits and statues all over the world of him. And I didn't know this, and I think you'll find this interesting. There's even a bas relief in the U.S. Capitol building of Suleiman as a remembrance of him being one of history's greatest lawmakers. That was cool. Now, of course, being as magnanimous as he was, there have been countless books written about him and his rule and his military campaigns, um, plays, movies, TV shows. There's apparently a TV show called Magnificent Century, which is a Turkish TV show, and it aired in 2011, and I'm going to get this name wrong, and I apologize, starring Halit Ergenç, I think, 
I'm not great on the Turkish. And it was a highly well-produced soap opera about Suleiman's life. And it ran from 2011 to 2014, was incredibly successful and actually ran in 52 countries, being one of the top grossing TV shows at the time. So I definitely want to take a look into that. It's interesting. There are even several government-sponsored archaeological digs and restoration projects in regards to the places that were under his rule or places where he had campaigns. There were at least seven restoration projects that had been underway in Hungary, and they had a $3 million grant given to them to restore the mosque within Svetgevard Castle, which is one of the last places he had his campaigns. And there have been searches for the heart of Suleiman, much like the burial place of the Great Khan. And it is rumored, obviously, if we just mentioned, that his heart and organs were buried under the tent where he had died. And you say that they believe they, they found him in a flower orchard or a flower garden? That a church and a flower orchard are on top, or fruit orchard is built on top of, is on top of them. I came across some evidence that says that that was not true, that that was used during World War I as a political tourist thing. So, because I've got some information from the University of, I guess it's, it's P-E-C-S and it's in Hungarian, so I'm not sure if it's PECS. So I'm not sure on that one, but there's a Professor Norbert Pop or Pap. And he's a professor of political geography and has been on the hunt for Suleiman's heart and has gone to look near the castle of Svetgevard. And on June 2nd of 2016, he and his team from the university announced that they believe that they have found the remains of the Sultan's heart. That's one well-preserved heart. Well, at least the remains of where it was. I mean, I can't imagine the heart's not going to be there, I'm sure. But they believe that they have found the location of where it, it is. Pop and his team apparently looked through many, many pages of our archival material from the time from the 1500s and into the 1600s. And apparently they came across a medieval map that they found an area would look to be an abandoned Turkish town in Hungary called Turbek. And on the map, it's actually apparently inscribed, here lies Suleiman. I think it's really interesting. Interesting, interesting. Mm -hmm. And then, so the team decided to look for, and they located this abandoned area, which was abandoned in 1680. And they were able to receive permission to dig in that area in 2015 and began to uncover foundations of what they believe to be the walls of the mausoleum that housed the Sultan's heart and organs. And there are pictures. Fascinating. Yeah, I'll definitely share them with you. But that was everything I had on the great Suleiman. All right. Well, let's, I think this episode ran long enough anyway. <laughs> uh, that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we check through history to explain it all. Bye. <laughs> Bye.